Previously on Soldier of Misfortune. When I first heard this story, I couldn't believe that even 60 years ago, someone could get away with passing 50 kited checks within two months without getting caught or getting their ass beat. He rents an airplane, telling the owner unlucky enough to rent it to him that he's going to visit a sick relative. Kesey then takes the plane and flies it to Havana, Cuba. Kesey was arrested by the feds and charged with 152 federal counts. Kesey served just three years and was paroled. Kesey tells her he won't be gone longer than an hour. It would be years before anybody would see him again. Well, at least in the Western Hemisphere. Welcome back to Soldier of Misfortune. I'm your host, Jesse Rappaport. When we left off in May of 1970, now twice convicted airplane and parachute thief Bobby Joe Kesey had shown up at his sister's house for a visit before disappearing seemingly into thin air. Well, at least from the Western world. Where exactly Kesey went during the next four months will probably forever remain a mystery. As you might be beginning to surmise, he was just that kind of guy. And this is before the days of video cameras on every city, street, and highway. Kesey would at one point later claim he was held hostage by Palestinian militants in Jordan. While it's true, around that time there were numerous similar actions taken in that part of the world on behalf of the Palestinian cause, any involvement of Kesey's would have been unsubstantiated. The next verifiable sighting of Kesey wouldn't be until September 17th of that year in Bangkok, Thailand. There, Kesey approached a Thai pilot and introduced himself as an American film producer, hoping to scout locations for a prospective film. He chartered the pilot to fly him around. Once the plane was airborne, Kesey pulled a gun on the pilot and demanded to be flown to North Vietnam. Now keep in mind, Kesey, a civilian American armed with presumably nothing more than the pistol he pulled on the pilot, was demanding to be flown behind enemy lines during the height of the Vietnam War. It's not just the audacity, it's the absurdity. It's about as sane as requesting to be dropped in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with nothing but a pool floaty and a bloody nose. The hijacked pilot would later testify to landing the plane on a remote beach in North Vietnam, where Kesey demanded to be dropped off. Kesey disembarked from the plane on the beach. Soon after, Kesey apparently made contact with a small village of people, who promptly turned him over to North Vietnamese forces. Kesey was taken to a place called Hoa Lo Prison, otherwise known by Americans as the Hanoi Hilton, the infamous prisoner of war facility run by the North Vietnamese. Originally called the Maison Centrale, it was set up in Hanoi by French colonists where Vietnamese prisoners, largely political prisoners, were housed. In karmically ironic fashion, some of those prisoners would become North Vietnam's communist leaders, and they in turn would use the prison to house their enemies. Not long before Kesey arrived there, the Hanoi Hilton had become a consolidation hub for American POWs from other smaller prisons. The majority of these prisoners were pilots who had been shot down. As it was a war, these prisoners were not well treated. Many prisoners were used, either on their way to the prison or while in prison, as propaganda pawns. They were put on camera and forced to say things, or they were paraded in front of crowds and taunted and even beaten by mobs of Vietnamese people who were angry about the destruction of their homes and families by Western colonial powers. Treatment was just as bad behind the walls of the prison, if not worse. 
Physical torture was used to gain intel and to punish prisoners, as was psychological torture, like threats of violence and prolonged solitary confinement. Food was often contaminated with mud or feces, and servicemen were vulnerable to tropical diseases from which they had never been exposed to and thus had no immunity. But perhaps the most torturous part of the Hanoi Hilton was the actual prison itself, the actual building where inmates were kept. It was old, in poor repair, and was never built to house that many individuals securely. In other words, it would have been pretty easy to escape the actual building. But once outside, you would have been a lone American behind enemy lines, and in downtown Hanoi during the war, a lone American would not have lasted even an hour. Maybe Kesey hadn't known any of this when he pulled the gun on that Thai pilot. Like I said, it's hard to imagine a sane person hijacking a plane at gunpoint and demanding to be taken to a place where being summarily executed might be the least painful thing that could happen to you. Then again, even if he hadn't known the specifics of the horrors occurring at Hualo Prison, Kesey, having been in the military for a whole decade, must have known he was asking to be dropped off in the most dangerous place in the world for someone like him. I mean, at this point, there's no possible way he didn't know there was a war going on there. So why? Why the fuck did Kesey demand to be taken to North Vietnam? Kesey's story is so fascinating to me, so at times mind-boggling, that it's led to some late nights, whether doing research or just stuck pondering some of these seemingly unanswerable questions. For that reason, I'm especially grateful to our sponsor, VitaDreams, for creating such an effective and delicious sleep aid. It's a proprietary blend of compounds you've likely already heard of, and they work together to help you sleep well, dream happy, and wake up the next day ready to run a marathon. And if that isn't enough, they come in delicious gummy form. I'm serious, if I had time to sleep all day, I'd eat these things like candy. They're that good. Each bottle contains four flavors. Slumberberry is my favorite, and if you have any taste, I'm sure you'll agree when you go to qrco.de slash s-l-e-e-p-e-z and get yourself a free sample shipped right to your door. Just pay the shipping. You can find a link and more info in the episode description. Now back to our story. As preposterous as it sounds to suggest that he might have actually wanted to be thrown in a POW prison, let me remind you, this is a man who hijacked a plane flew to Cuba, at the time one of the United States' biggest foes, and asked for asylum. This is a man who had clearly established a pattern of not only embellishing his military record, but flat-out lying about working for the CIA, as well as whatever job he told his sister about before disappearing from her house. Maybe, at this point, assuming Kesey to be a sane person is not the safe assumption. Soon after he arrived at the Hanoi Hilton, Kesey was questioned and ultimately tortured by the North Vietnamese. They, probably even more befuddled by the details of Kesey's arrival than you or I, assumed that Kesey was a spy, albeit maybe the worst spy ever at that. When Kesey couldn't provide them any useful information because, well, he didn't have any, he was in essence on vacation, the North Vietnamese tortured him, knocking out his front teeth and pulling some of his fingernails clean out. The fact that Kesey wasn't more severely brutalized is probably in large part due to the fact that by the time Kesey arrived in late 1970, the treatment of inmates, while still extreme, would have been markedly better than in the late 60s. Even though the North Vietnamese still ran the prison with an iron fist, the American POWs there had some leverage. Among the numerous Americans being held there, one was the son of the commander of all U.S. forces in Vietnam, a young man named John McCain. When the press learned of his capture, 
His picture was on the front page of major American newspapers. The North Vietnamese soon realized that while this gave them leverage in some respects, they also now had to uphold a certain level of treatment for prisoners, or otherwise risk having their war crimes brought to real international attention. McCain, who would do more than twice the time Kesey did at the Hanoi Hilton, was not the only inmate there who would go on to achieve prominence in American politics during the rest of the 20th century. Kesey, a deserter and now two-time ex-con, would have been literally rubbing shoulders with men who would one day become governors, congressmen, senators, even presidential candidates, with their time at the Hanoi Hilton being an integral part of the public trust and respect that would propel them into those positions. Many of these men came from military or political families and would have had upbringings far more privileged than Kesey's. But at Holo Prison, among the inmates, it was a very community-oriented culture. American soldiers tapped messages to each other in code. They looked out for each other. Some, when given the opportunity for release, even refused to leave unless all their fellow prisoners were released as well. Regardless of their origins, the guests of the Hanoi Hilton were, in a very practical sense, equals. Eventually, the Paris Accord is signed in January 1973, and the U.S. military pulls out of Vietnam and American POWs in Vietnam are freed and sent to a U.S. military base in the Philippines. Kesey and the rest of the Hualo prison detainees are liberated, and Kesey is sent home on a military cargo plane, along with John McCain. They were greeted by a crowd at an airfield and honored as heroes. The U.S. State Department, who helped oversee the release, had assumed Kesey was dead when they heard from one angry Thai pilot about the hijacking, until they realized that he was a detainee at the Hanoi Hilton the State Department was prepared for Kesey's arrival home. Kesey, upon arrival at the airfield, was quickly whisked away to a secure private room and interviewed by the feds. According to the State Department, Kesey refused to discuss the conditions of his capture in Vietnam. In addition to wanting what the North Vietnamese wanted, namely any remotely useful intelligence information, the U.S. government also had another Kesey-related political contrempts on their hands. The Thai government was demanding that Kesey be extradited to them to face charges for hijacking that plane. You see, the plane was owned by a company owned by Prince Birabang Sibanudej, also known as Prince Bira of Siam, who, among being the first Southeast Asian driver to ever compete in Formula One racing, was also very high up in the Thai royal family. He wanted Kesey to be convicted in a Thai court and for Kesey to be fined $2,000, about $12,000 today. But the U.S., as much as they didn't want to sour relations with another foreign government over some ex-con with a propensity to steal planes, was even more loath to hand Kesey over. The Vietnam War had not been popular, and the return of American POWs alive was about as redeeming a moment as the war provided the voting public. As far as the government was concerned, the deserter and convicted felon Kesey had to be, as far as the American public could know, a war hero. As Prince Bira of Siam futilely threatened to sue Kesey, Kesey was invited to the White House, where he dined with other POWs while listening to some of the greatest celebrity entertainers of the time perform. He was even given a check from the government for $1,700, that'd be over 10 Gs today. He's never extradited or otherwise held accountable for the Thai hijacking. Pictures of him arriving home from Vietnam, hugging a woman reporters assumed was his sister, were printed in newspapers. While not anywhere near as well-known as the likes of John McCain, Kesey had very much succeeded in equalizing himself with men much more privileged and honorable than himself. 
From the point of view of personal identity, Kesey's three years in Hanoi kind of paid off. He would go on to participate in parades and other veteran-related events, cosplaying the war hero he had lied for 15 years about being. Maybe this is what Kesey had wanted all along when he pulled that pistol on that Thai pilot three years earlier. Maybe the first few months back in the United States were proof to Kesey that he was the hero he worked hard to lead people to believe he was. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's total bullshit. But if Kesey did return to the U.S. feeling like he'd reinvented himself, he would soon learn that the three-year nightmare he put himself through didn't take him as far as he might have hoped. After all, there's only so much good favor a largely unknown ex-POW can survive on. Eventually, Kesey moved to Southern California, allegedly finding work as a cabinet maker in Santa Ana. It's not long after that that Kesey approaches a teenage co-worker, inviting him to help Kesey pull a job in Mexico that would make them rich. They were going to kidnap an American diplomat for ransom. Join me for the next episode to find out how that works out for Bobby Joe Kesey. Spoiler alert, it's a shit show. Available now wherever you listen. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this episode, don't keep it a secret. Please rate and review the show on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, you should check out my other podcast, Still Cherried, which you can find on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Vita Dreams, for their support. And most importantly, thank you for listening. <laughs>